well, this weekend, we've been talking about how to study the Bible, and Jordan brought to us last night why we should study the Bible, and Jared brought to us earlier today uh, the first step of Bible study, which is observation. And so now we're going to be talking about step two, interpretation. So on your bookmarks, this is the back side, the top half, the next 10% of Bible study. The first 80% is observation, the next 10% is interpretation. I'm going to warn you off the top, I'm going to be a little bit academic. I'm going to set the bar a little bit high um, so as to stretch you. But everybody should have notes. Uh, so try to follow along. If I move too fast, just let the note, just let the blank pass you by. What? Um, do you have any At least you. Talk to all the colorers. All the spare papers are uh, on the box in the back underneath the other bookmarks. <clears throat> all right. So if you miss a blank, just let it pass you by. Uh, we can get those filled in later. You can talk to a neighbor or talk to me afterwards. All right, good. Cool. If you're the kind of person who can't listen and take notes at the same time, just just put the notes aside. It's fine. I'm that way too. You never see me take notes during a message. I can't really do it. It doesn't really work out very well. Um, so, interpretation. Uh, let's just begin with a biblical, uh, excuse me, a non-biblical example for us to deal with. Uh, we have a, a song for you to listen to. Go ahead, Jordan. I'm not going to sing it. It won't go well. See all the people. <laughs> ah, yeah. All right, you're good. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> show of hands, who knows the song? Oh, perfect. Okay. Oh, yeah. Go. Wow. Very energetic. Okay. So, if you, if you don't know the song, that's uh, Sarah Bareilles' 2007 track, uh, Love Song. And let me just read to you the ending of the song, and then we'll, we'll get to some interpretation. She says this, or she writes this. Is that why you wanted a love song? Because you asked for it. Because you need one. You see, I'm not going to write you a love song because you tell me it's make or break in this. If you're on your way, I'm not going to write you to stay. If your heart is nowhere in it, I don't want it for a minute. Babe, I'll walk the seven seas when I believe that there's a reason for me to write you a love song. So a little bit brutal. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a breakup song, right? Can we all agree, show of hands, this is basically a breakup song. All right? Yeah? Yeah? Are we good? Yeah. Okay. Except that it has nothing to do with a failed romance. <laughs> uh, the song is about how her record label uh, was denying her less than radio-friendly songs for production. And so she wrote them a very radio-friendly song, flipping them the middle finger. And we know this for certain because she's said this in interviews. She said that that's what the song is about. And so off of that, because we have a passage, a song, a text, 
which can appear to mean something, but in fact means something very different. Off of that, I want us to look at what makes an interpretation right. What makes it valid or correct? Why does the fact that the songwriter explained the meaning of a song in an interview change our interpretation? So, as I said, I'll be a little bit academic. Um, actually, Ethan, where's Ethan? Hello. Yeah, I need my easel. Okay, so you have this on your notes. We're going to go through that first diagram. The field of interpretation, the study of determining the meaning of a text, is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, just Herman, E-U-T-I-C-S. Okay, you have this on your paper. And there are different types of hermeneutics, different approaches, different philosophies. On the back of your bookmark, there's a quote near the top, and it says this, God's word is his own. Scripture means not what you or a group thinks, or even what the text could possibly mean, but what he intended it to mean. So let me make this a little bit more concrete. And uh, we've all been using John 3.16 as an example, and actually I have it in here too. So... <laughs> yeah, great, synergy, right? Say that there's a group of people gathered together for a Bible study, and they're studying John 3.16. And they're disagreeing about what it means. And more specifically, why it means that. And so one guy, I'll draw the big circle. I thought we were going to have a whiteboard, and evidently I was wrong. So thank you, Ethan. <laughs> no! <laughs> No. Okay. One guy, one guy thinks that whatever it is you interpret John 3.16 to be, that's what it actually means. Whatever the individual reader interprets it to mean is what it means. He makes it mean that. So it might mean something to Elise, it might mean something to Drew, and those might be entirely different, but as long as they read it, that's what it actually means. Okay? This is what we would call a reader my terrible handwriting, based, hermeneutic. I'll just put an H. That's your first blank. A reader-based hermeneutic. Another guy disagrees with him, and he says, no, 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 no. You need more than just one, right? Majority rules. You've got to at least have, it, it's got to be a group. Uh, you need to have a group of people agree on an interpretation, and then whatever they agree on is what makes it mean what it means, okay? That would be a Community-based hermeneutic, okay? So, very similar. One thinks that whatever anybody interprets it to be is what it actually means. The other one thinks that, no, you just need a group of readers together. All right? The next one, this inner circle, we have another friend in the meeting, and he disagrees with the other two, and he says that the words, the definitions of the words, make John 3.16 mean what it means. And whatever those words, whatever the text could reasonably be interpreted to mean is what it actually means. The words exert control over the meaning of the passage. This is what we would call a text-based hermeneutic. Okay? And any reasonable interpretation of John 3.16 is equally as valid as another reasonable interpretation of John 3.16, even if they contradict each other. 
Now contrasted with these is the biblical basis for meaning, the biblical hermeneutic, and this is the dot that you have in the center. And I'm sorry, this doesn't have based after it. This is called authorial intent. Authorial intent. Okay? Author, I-A-L, intent. I spelled like three letters. You're welcome. Okay, this is the idea uh, that no individual, uh, no, the individual reader doesn't make John 3.16 mean, mean what it means. And just because you get a group of people together to agree doesn't make it mean whatever they agree on. Nor do the definitions of the words exert complete control on the meaning of a verse. The authors, in this case, God and the Apostle John, make John 3.16 mean what it means. They're the ones who decide what the verse means. All right, you can go sit down. Thank you, Ethan. The Bible means what it means because the original authors decided what it would mean when they wrote it. The original authors decided what it would mean when they wrote it. This is called authorial intent. Authorial intent. It is dependent on the intention of the author. We see this relationship between text, author, and meaning represented in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed, right? It's from God. There's a special relationship between the author and the scripture. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Although it came through men, it came in such a way that Scripture is still God's Word. He spoke it. He determines the meaning. And to steal a point from Dr. Abner Chow uh, from the Master's Seminary, uh, he basically says this, the Bible is very comfortable using interchangeably phrases like God spoke through the prophet or the Scriptures proclaimed or Isaiah says in one case, it's the prophet himself. In the other case, it's the words themselves. In, in the other, it's God through the prophet. These are all used interchangeably. And this is how we know authorial intent is correct. It's how the Bible interprets or talks about itself. And I want to be sure uh, with this, I know you can all read the bookmark. So instead of just reading off to you what they all are. I want to arm you with understanding why this is the right way to study the Bible. There is no other option. It may not be exhaustive, but it is true. It may not be full, but it is true. To put this more specifically, we study the Bible the way we do, not because it's intuitive and not because it's reasonable, but because it's the way the biblical writers interpret each other. You understand? This is the way we know how to study the Bible. We look at the way the people who wrote the Bible study their Bible. Okay. It's how God interprets his own scriptures through the human authors. So when you interpret the Bible, or anything for that matter, what you are looking for is what did the author mean when they wrote this? What did the author mean when they wrote this? Now, what is the act of interpretation? It is to discover what the author meant. 
Your job is to figure out what John or Paul or Peter meant. How do we discover what the author meant? What is the method? That's what we're going to be focusing on today. Now, think of observation. Uh, I have this bracelet here. It has my name on it and a number of other beads. I got this at a camp I was at, actually in another campsite in Nachis a couple weeks ago. Uh, this has my name on it and a couple of purple beads. Uh, think of observation as collecting the beads, getting them all up in a group. Interpretation, then, would be putting the beads in the right order so they actually spell out my name and have purple on this side and purple on that side. Threading the string through and tying it so that it all coheres into one whole. So you've all observed Colossians 3. You've gathered the beads, so to speak. And uh, what do you do now? You put them together in the way that the authors intended so that you can understand how it all coheres. How does this all fit together? What you're doing in interpretation is, is you've gathered a bunch of data. You're putting it together now. You had all the Lego bricks. Now you're building it correctly. Building Helm's Deep correctly. <laughs> Amen. Calm down. How does this piece, this piece fit with that piece? Uh, how does this make sense uh, as an argument or as a story? What's Paul's main point here? Just to give you an, uh, an example, if you say that the Twin Towers fell on 9-11 because of gravity, you have presented data and presented observations, but you have not interpreted correctly. You kind of missed the point. Now, let's get to some practical steps. Uh, we begin with observation. We begin with the content or the data we gathered in observation. The data. Why do we begin with observation? As I said, I want you to know why these are correct. I don't, I don't just want you to go off like a robot and start doing things because I told you to. Uh, that would be awful. Why do we know this is correct? Uh, think about it like this. If the person making my bracelet didn't, didn't gather all of the beads and then just made the bracelet, just strung the thing through and tied it off, it, it could come out saying the S word. I have those letters in my name. It could come out saying CRT, and it could look like I'm wearing a, a social justice bracelet, neither of which I would wear or appreciate, and both of which would fail at the, the task of making a bracelet with my name on it. The point is this. If you fail to observe correctly, you will fail to interpret correctly. You have to. If you skillfully interpret that which you have unskillfully observed, you will have polished a turd. Okay, next is comparison. Uh, you do need to begin with observation, but from comparison on, these are in whatever particular order. If you want to interpret the Bible correctly, you must compare Scripture with Scripture. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're studying Genesis 22, uh, where Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. And you're wondering, like, how in the world he could be okay with this? What was going through his mind as he's hiking up this mountain, knife in hand, preparing to sacrifice his own son. Well, there actually is a verse that tells you what was going through his mind. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, and then he quotes, 
in Isaac your seed shall be called, end quote, he considered, and this is what Abraham was thinking, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. So why do we compare Scripture with Scripture? Because all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore written by one author telling one story. And he can say something in Hebrews that will help you interpret what he says in Genesis. Even in those verses from Hebrews, the author of Hebrews models comparing Scripture with Scripture for us. He quotes Genesis 21 in order to interpret Genesis 22. So, let me just boil this down. When the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, but when the author of Hebrews sat down to study his Bible, to study Genesis, he did it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so, when we study our Bibles, and we interpret, we do it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So, when you go to Colossians today, do what the author of Hebrews did. If you don't understand how an idea or a word fits into the overall narrative or argument, take that word, take that phrase, and start thinking about what do we know about this? Does this appear elsewhere in Colossians or, or elsewhere in the Bible? How does the way it's talked about in the rest of the Bible, in other areas of Scripture, change how I understand it here? If you have a reference Bible, uh, basically, if you have a Bible with all of those like random references, all those random Bible verses in really small print in the margin, that's what those are for. That's the biblical uh, translators basically giving you all of the verses that are, or some of the verses that are being referenced. Now, so we've done observation, we've done comparison, next is background. To correctly interpret the Bible, you must uh, understand the cultural and historical background. The cultural and historical background. Also, where is this in redemptive history? Let me give you another example. In Ephesians 4.8, Paul is writing and he says, therefore it says, and then he quotes, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. End quote. Now Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, and he completely changes the ending. He completely changes the ending of Psalm 68 when he quotes it. In Psalm 68, it says, received gifts among men. He received gifts among men. In Ephesians 4.8, it says he gave gifts to men. In one it's received, in the other it's gave. Why the change? Because Paul understands that Psalm 68 is a victory psalm about victory in war. And historically, culturally, when a king defeated an opposing kingdom, he uh, plundered all of their wealth. He gathered the spoils of war. He would receive gifts among men. But he would do that so that he could redistribute them to his allies for helping him beat the opposing team. He gave gifts to men. He would receive gifts to men, receive gifts from men so that he could give gifts. See, Paul is aware of the cultural and historical background of the passage and uses it to interpret the passage. And if Paul interpreted the Bible by looking at the cultural and historical background, then we should interpret the Bible in light of the cultural and historical background. So, 
when you interpret Colossians in a little bit. Take a look at the cultural and historical background of both Paul and the Colossians. You can find these facts in commentaries. I brought a couple of commentaries. Uh, if you have a study Bible, there's also a study Bible in the back. Uh, it might tell you about, uh, about the history in a particular commentary or, or a comment on a particular verse or at the beginning of the book. Um, I also brought uh, the New Testament and Antiquity book that will tell you about uh, Colossians in detail. You can look at a map in the back of your Bible and, and then go back and consider how these facts affect what Paul is saying. Okay, observation, comparison, background, next, context. Context is extremely important. Um, I was tempted, as most people do, to take this as an opportunity to bring to you some hilarious examples of verses being taken out of context. Uh, if you want to know those, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you. But instead, let me show you again, we look at context when we study the Bible because it's the way the biblical writers studied their Bible. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the obvious implication from this is that he's, he's proclaiming Psalm 22 is a prophecy about him. But he only quotes half of the first verse, not even a full verse. But it's not as if he was unaware of the context, as if he quoted Psalm 22 and just by happenstance that Psalm talks about the, uh, the, the writer being pierced in his hands and feet, as if that was some sort of coincidence. No, that's why he quoted it. It's just easier to quote half a verse when you're dying than the entire psalm. And certainly, if Jesus himself interpreted Bible verses and passages in light of their context, then we should interpret Bible verse, verses and passages in light of their context. So, when you study Colossians today, consider what Paul says in context. Go ahead and flip through Colossians and see if he, if he talks about a word or a phrase earlier. If you're confused about it, if, if Paul makes a conclusion, think about uh, what it would take to convince somebody of that conclusion and then compare that to what uh, he actually says to support his argument. Consider the logical steps he's making to support what he's saying. Okay. Now we've talked about the things that the biblical writers have done and modeled for us and why we do the same. So now let's talk quickly about uh, two things that most aid us in, in doing these things well. So, firstly, tools. There are a number of tools at your disposal as a Bible interpreter. And I just, uh, I'll just draw your attention to uh, one of the last things on the bookmark. It's called Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible. If you don't have Blue Letter Bible, go download it. You probably don't have Wi-Fi here, but get it when you go home. All the books that I have on the back table are pretty much moot with Blue Letter Bible. It fulfills almost every book on there. It is extremely powerful. You can look at different translations, uh, sermons, maps, videos, illustrations, um, a good number of commentaries, the original languages. 
it is a very, very powerful tool and it's very useful. Uh, the only other thing I'll say, um, some of you have already perused the section we have back there. Probably the most intimidating book or books are the concordances and sometimes we hear that word and we have no idea what the heck a concordance is and you flip it open and it looks even more intimidating than its name. It's just a wall of text and a lot of numbers. Here's what a concordance is. It's just a list of every time the Bible uses a particular word. And it's in alphabetical order. So if you want to know, for instance, uh, how does the Bible talk about image? You flip to I and it will just tell you. It's just a list of all the verses that use that word. It's very, very useful as uh, something to reference to. I would never recommend that you just sit down and read through the whole thing. That's not exactly its purpose. It's not that kind of book. Okay, now finally, last of all, different types of translations. So we're gonna start, uh, if you're looking at the bookmark, we'll start on the right side and work our way left. I won't talk to you about bad translations of the Bible. If you wanna hear about those, come talk to me afterwards. Um, but firstly, paraphrases. Paraphrases are not translations. They're not inherently bad, though there are certainly bad translations of passages or verses. Um, but they are not inherently bad. Just be sure that you treat them as someone's opinion because that's what they are. They're not translations of the Bible. Dynamic equivalence Bibles, dynamic equivalents, are translated with a focus on getting the thought on the page. Having a corresponding uh, thought in your English Bible to every thought in the Greek Bible. They're not necessarily so concerned with having uh, the same number of English words as Greek words or as Hebrew words, they're trying to get the ideas to you. So they can be easier to understand, but sometimes they can lack some of the nuance of the particular wording. Uh, nonetheless, they are still very good. CSB and NIV are great Bibles. Formal equivalence Bibles are translated with a focus on having a corresponding English word for every Greek word. These are word-for-word -word Bibles is what we call them. Um, and it should be said, there is really no such thing as a word-for-word -word Bible. Uh, we do not have English words that perfectly represent the meaning of Greek words. They're different languages. They were made in different points in time with different economic structures and all those sorts of things that affect how language develops. Um, so they say it's word-for-word. -word. There is still some interpretation in it. Uh, I could give you examples, but for the sake of time, I won't. Now the point of understanding this, just briefly or broadly, is so that you can look at different translations of the Bible when you study. It's very helpful. It helps you understand uh, the entirety or get a more complete understanding of what the biblical writer's talking about. But in order to do that, you do need to understand why different translations translate certain words or verses differently, why they aren't exactly the same. What Bibles are giving you a more literal translation and which ones are trying to make it much easier for you to understand. So, just to summarize all this, begin with doing a good job in interpretation. If you don't, you will not uh, have everything that you need to understand the passage correctly. Compare scripture with scripture. It's what the biblical writers did. Find words, phrases, and ideas you're confused about and look at how the Bible as a whole talks about them. Do some research and find out what the culture was like for the reader, uh, for the writer. 
Look at the cultural and historical background. It's what the biblical writers did. Look for common, um, excuse me, consider their location or their, their time in history. What was the, the dominant philosophies of the views of man or God? Were there any heresies creeping into the church? Look at the context. It's what the biblical writers did. Look for common or juxtaposed themes, reused words, phrases, or motifs outside of the main passage in question. In our case, go outside of Colossians 3 into other chapters of Colossians, especially earlier chapters. If Paul is building an argument, look at his foundation. Use the tools believers have, uh, previous believers have crafted for you to help you with Bible study. And finally, look at other translations and remember why they vary in their exact wording. 